the, the number one, two, three, uh, just because I say it doesn't mean that uh, I exclusively control it, right? And that uh, if other people would say the number one, two, three, that all of a sudden it, it would be lost out of my control. And on the contrary, um, I, I can give other people the pattern of one, two, three, three, and they use it however they want or share it with others without detaining anything from me. I don't have to sacrifice anything uh, in that scarce good. So here, information is inherently non-scarce and therefore void of property rights. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Don't forget right now, you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga. There are still four copies that you can get where you can get your name and the message to the apes put in. And if you follow the contest link in the description below, you can win one of five free signed copies or $288 worth of Riverside FM for one whole year. Finally, I'm currently running a contest where you can win a signed copy of To The Moon, The GameStop Saga, one of five, or $288 worth of Riverside FM Pro. That's a whole year subscription. Please check out the link in the description below. It's free to enter, and I just want to give something back. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Let's do this. Okay, so everything's rolling. Wonderful. So, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Max Hillebrand, who is a free software engineer. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Josh, for the invite. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, no problem. Um, so the, the tweet that, that that sort of brought you on my radar as someone I would like to speak to was uh, your talk about um, writing a book about Austrian economics and privacy and cypherpunk philosophy. So I have no doubt that some of your answers to my questions today are going to be um, more than interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really like three different kind of um, uh, schools of thought that tackle different problems, but they are so similar in their methodology and in the the approach and the assumptions and the conclusions. Um, and uh, when you combine them, uh, I think you get a very uh, nice deep level of insight and a lot of uh, confirmations uh, across uh, different um, yeah, specialities. Hmm. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was about well so why do you think that privacy is crucial for freedom or is it at all i i think privacy comes very early in the deductive uh, um, method of, of freedom right so we start with the basic assumptions that individuals act right humans act uh, meaning that uh, first of all the individual exists right and he is the the, le the level of analysis we're not talking about collective behavior here we're talking about individual action and so uh, an action means that the individual is in a state of uneasiness, meaning that he has problems right? and that he has the entrepreneurial genius, that creative insight to think of mu multiple future scenarios 
where these problems are solved, right? Where the uneasiness is removed, uh, where your ends have been achieved, right? And in order to achieve those ends, man must allocate scarce resources and sacrifice them. Um, uh, scarcity being here a, a good that can only be used uh, one time, basically. You, you can't use the same good to solve multiple problems. Uh, it's, it's just one, the, the good is a one-time th one, one use good. It's a scarce good. Um, and uh, therefore, there's a conflict right, of resource allocations. Uh, you have infinite number of problems, but you have limited number of, of resources to solve them, right? Unlimited ends, but finite means. And so how do you uh, allocate your means in order to achieve your ends, right? And whereas kind of psychology or, or maybe spirituality uh, or certainly morality tries to find out which ends to choose. And right? so what should you be striving for? What should be your highest goal? Uh, what is more important than something else? Right? That's a question of psychology, uh, broadly speaking, uh, and not economics, uh, where, whereas praxeology is about uh, the, the causal consequences of allocating means and the, 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 the end result that will inevitably follow. Right? So it's if you have a certain goal, not making a judgment of, of what your goal is, but if that is your goal, uh, and the way that you allocate your means right now, I can tell you that it will not lead you to the end goal. Right? That's an economic statement. Um, and uh, uh, how does privacy tie into this? Well, privacy is the aspect to selectively reveal yourself to the world, right? And uh, and this is so inherently tied to human action, right? There are again infinite end end case scenarios of how you could reveal, uh, or infinite scenarios that you might want to achieve, and infinite means of how you act together with other people, how you reveal yourself to other people. Uh, there are numerous different ways that you could that you could go about it. And privacy is the simple realization that how to reveal yourself is up to the individual. Uh, that is an individual right of how to allocate your property rights in the scarce resource of your body, uh, especially when it comes uh, to talking to others. Right? So privacy is not just having the ability to not speak something if you don't choose to share it, right? but, but also to close the curtains in your house if you don't want people to see inside, right? You're still manipulating your own property, not just in your body, but also in your physical goods. Okay. So essentially you're saying that, that all, all the information or all the knowledge or all the, all the, the stuff, all the, yeah, all of our data about ourselves, um, whether that's like actual like information, I mean, or like data on a computer, that that should all be in your mind completely the completely ours until we choose to give it up basically and that that the the choice to give it up okay is us sacrificing some some privacies for security or for monetary return or for social acceptance but that that should ultimately in a free society remain the the scope of within the scope of the individual to reveal there's one interesting nuance here and that is when we're talking about scarce goods and there are also going to be non-scarce goods so what's the difference here um, whereas with a scarce good you can only use it once right it's only available for one problem to be solved non-scarce goods um, are either uh, uh, super abundant meaning that uh, even though every single unit of that good can only be used to solve one problem, 
there are so many units out there that you can just solve all problems that you could reasonably come up with. And so that is a, a, a scarce good becoming super abundant, basically. And therefore, it is no longer a matter of economic concern. That's like air. You know, you have a bunch of air around you. You don't need to think about economizing it unless you're underwater and you have only one bottle, but two divers. Right? Uh, then it becomes obvious that it is still scarce in the sense of exclusive. Um, but there are also um, non-exclusive goods per se, right? those that uh, I can share with others without sacrificing it myself. Uh, contrary to a log of wood or gold coin or something, right? So that is uh, especially information in the sense of patterns, right? The, the number one, two, three, uh, just because I say it doesn't mean that uh, I exclusively control it, right? And that uh, if other people would say the number one, two, three, that all of a sudden it, it would be lost out of my control. And on the contrary, um, I, I can give other people the pattern of one, two, three, three, and they use it however they want or share it with others without detaining anything from me. I don't have to sacrifice anything uh, in that scarce good. So here information is inherently non-scarce and therefore void of property rights. Uh, we don't need property rights because property rights are an inherent resource allocation solution for scarce resources. So when we're talking about non-scarce resources where anyone can, can have them to satisfy their ends, well then obviously uh, just take it. Um, it, it it's uh, there, there is no property. Um, but here, of course, right, there's, there, so you always have to differentiate the two, but they are, of course, inherently together in, in every analysis, right? So, um, for example, uh, I, I own my body, it's a scarce resource, and I control the lips and my tongue to verbalize these patterns, right? And I have exclusive ownership over my scarce body, in the sense that I can reveal, I can shape it to reveal whatever information I would like to reveal. However, once I speak the information, the pattern itself, that pattern I don't own at all, uh, obviously, because uh, it's not scarce. So others can repeat the pattern right, or record the pattern um, uh, and, and spread it and gossip it around. Right? So uh, as a more concrete example, um, if, if you know your neighbor on his own house in the property that he controls, scarce property of the house, uh, he looks over, you know, out of the window and into your window, and he sees you, you know. Is that a bad act? Did he take something away from you? No, he just looked and he saw the pattern of your body in the kitchen. You know, he didn't take anything from you. Um, he, he copied the non-scarce information. Um, and, and, of course, uh, so you cannot stop him from doing that on his own land. It's his own body, right? He can look at whatever he wants to look. But, of course, you're very much in the power to change your surroundings and your actions by closing the curtains to prevent uh, an, an outside observer from seeing this, right? So that, that is where privacy comes in. It's not that you own your information or that you own your digital data or, or something like that. That's bullshit. Uh, it's, it's about what can you do uh, to change your behavior of how you reveal yourself to others, because especially in cyberspace, once the information is out, it's out and people won't forget it. Computers won't forget it. Yeah. Ah, computers won't forget it. People often do forget <laughs> very quickly, unfortunately. Um, so I'm curious then um, about this idea here that we're talking about, that like information you don't believe should be free. Or sorry, you believe information should be free and sort of um, freely exchanged, but it's the right to, that everyone should then have the right to like pull the shutters down essentially on their on their information. So how how would that work in in cyberspace like would we each be 
like in in a totally like ideal or theoretical world like how would how would that even theoretically work exactly that's um that's where kind of the old austrian economic uh, uh take on, on privacy and, and human action is um works really well in meat space and it's well established long like early 2000s and such um where whereas the cypherpunks manifested the same concept in in cyberspace as a reality right so uh, w- what is cyberspace what is the internet uh, the internet is basically a, a connection of computers right so physical hardware physical wires people own the physical atoms that make up these wires and they are exclusive scarce resources right the one uh, um, whatever you do on one computer you like yeah, there's limited resources available to compute um, so whoever f- either builds or buys the hardware um, has full ownership on it and can therefore use that physical material for however he pleases. And um, that is where software comes in, because software is a pattern that you repeat on your physical machine uh, and, and you transform the pattern and you calculate with it. Right. Um, that uh, Computing, literally, right, uh, you're solving a program, an algorithm. Um, that's changing patterns, and nobody owns these patterns, right? Um, people own the machines, the, the physical computers, but the software in and of itself is just numbers, one, two, three. Nobody owns the number one, two, three. doesn't matter how large the number gets, right? Um, and, but then we can combine our computers to so that they replicate patterns across each other, right? So um, if you want to copy or, or move information from one place to the other, both in, inside one machine as well as across multiple machines over a network, uh, you the, you can copy files uh, in, in a way that you can verify that the other guy now has the exact same pattern down to the very last bit, um, uh, and that's that's magical, right? We can literally share patterns perfectly with computers, uh, and again, sharing patterns is an inherent human trait, right? That's that's what we do. We, we interact with each other and, and share what we learned. Um, but but now um, the problem is like how if if I would like for example in this network of computers you know um, uh, I I forward my package from one computer to the other and to the next and to the next and so on until it reaches the destination it's roughly how the internet works well now all of these people in the middle they get to see my pattern right. Um, but m- maybe I don't want to uh, like share them that pattern. Maybe that's some you know sensitive information like just a private chat conversation or some financial statement or, or your Bitcoin private keys for that matter. Right? Some really important piece of pattern. Um, maybe you don't want to tell it to them, right? And you don't have to. Like you're not obligated to tell anyone anything, right? It's your body. It's your hardware. You can tell them what you want. Um, but still, if you tell them some stuff, it's useful, right? Because they can, for example, relay your packages. Um, so now the trick is, um, how can you um, have a, a pattern that can be um, given to someone else so that the actual pattern that he receives just is uncomprehensible? It's just gibberish, you know, it, it, it uh, is not readable. But for, for anyone who has kind of a, a secret piece of information, a secret pattern, a password, basically, um, just for whoever has that knowledge, in addition to the gibberish, that person can transform that pattern into what's actually meaningful. Right? And, and that's the gist of encryption. Right? To change a pattern from something that's humanly readable, just a piece of clear text, 
uh, change it into some gibberish, send the gibberish around to other people, right? And, and that's how you choose to reveal yourself. Instead of sending the clear text, you send the cipher text, the gibberish, um, knowing that, the, uh, that only the person who knows a certain secret can transform the pattern from cipher text into clear text to actually get the um, kind of readable thing. And, and so that's where that's where the cypherpunks came in. Like, yes, you, we are sharing a lot of information here, and the information is recorded on computers, and there are massive amount of information. But um, we can change the patterns that we communicate in clever ways so that uh, it limits the people who uh, who can read the message. Right? And and that's a very interesting concept. Mm. Okay, so do you think? people can own yeah a sequence of numbers like is like because okay so so obviously it's a little more intangible in the internet so i want to try and like bring it back to like a a slightly more analog place in order to like get my head around the concept and exactly what you're sort of in favor of here so the like you can't own the words, all the words that go into a great novel. But if you're the one that puts the words in those sequence, like you own the intellectual property of said novel, are the cipher funk or cipher punks? That's a real word to say. Um, <laughs> I've just realised how like tongue twisty that is. Um, is that do they do they not believe or do you not believe that anyone can own like a series or a specific series of, of numbers or words or, you know, a bit of information like is is intellectual property in that way, just non-existent in, in their sort of conception of the ideal world. It's not just non-existent. It's, it's counter logical or just illogical, you know, uh, it, it, and it depends on the word own. Okay. Do you own a certain piece of information, right? And and ownership means exclusion, meaning that other people cannot use that thing, right? But if I own the number one, two, three, you can still think of the number one, two, three, right? It's not impossible. Either you come up with it or, or you ask me for a copy, right? So that's, you can know a certain piece of information. You can create a new pattern that we've uh, assumably not seen before, right? Um, it, probably the pattern that you created was discovered a long time ago by someone already, right? So, so actual creation of patterns is 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 very a new creation of a new pattern is very difficult, um, uh, but th that's not a bad thing, you know. Copying someone else's pattern is 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 great. That's how patterns work. That's how information works, right? Um, where the the problem with intellectual property in my mind is that where it tries to protect someone's ownership in information. It actively harms someone's ownership in, in actual physical scarce resources. Right? So let's think of a book. Um, uh, I, I write a, a, presu a presumably new pattern uh, in long form and text. It's a novel. Right? Um, and, and I come up with, with this pattern and I, I buy a piece of paper, right? a physical scarce resource. I, I buy it honorably. Uh, and now I write in my own time with my own ink and my own pen. I write this pattern on there. Right? And, and now I give you the book. Right? So again, the physical pages are scarce resources. And, and when I sell you the book and you give me money, we're exchanging the scarce resource in the actual paper for the, the scarce resource of the money. Um, but the, the, the pattern itself uh, is um, uh, like 
so so in an, in another example, if if you now would get uh, your own piece of paper, your own ink, and on your own time, you write the exact same pattern on there, right? Um, now, have you taken anything away from the quote unquote original author? No, right? It's it's not his paper, it's not his ink, and he still has his pattern, right? But now, when the original owner can come after you and say, "Hey, uh, you're not allowed to write that pattern down," I take your book now. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, your property rights in the paper and the ink that you honorably bought and that you advanced with your entrepreneurial genius of writing, um, which is actually quite a genius trait. Uh, so uh, that's now taken away from you. Right. So we, we try to establish a sort of ownership of information, which is which is why, you know, like we have private property only because we live in, in a conflicting situation. Right? We have we have conflict. Different people want to use the same resource for different things, and we need to solve that conflict. Therefore, we use property rights. Right? Whoever gets it first, or whoever builds it, or whoever exchanges voluntarily for it, that's the only person who gets to make the decision of the the one task where that mean can be allocated to. Right? But with information, there is no constraint. Right? Everyone can copy all the information, and nobody is going to lack anything. Um, and, and, you know, that's like with a PDF document, I just copy a PDF document over to you or, or now the data that we send over to you, like copying is, is it nearly like nothing, you know, a couple joules of electricity and that's it. Um, so that's why, why would we limit ourselves and introduce artificial scarcity in the beautiful superabundance of cyberspace where, where information longs to be free, right? That uh, intellectual property just in its concept, tries to hinder that, tries to put this, this infinite realm of possibility of patterns and build boxes around them and then build walls where it's not required. Okay. So I've got like, <clears throat> I have quite a conflict going on in my head about this right now. So, <clears throat> so I'm a, like all my works on the internet, everything's free, available to get all my stuff forever, right? And my podcast that I run, um, I like I sell ad space on it, but um, this podcast that we're on right now, actually. <laughs> um, so, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that paywalls their content. I don't like the idea of of like Patreon subscriptions that allow extra things. I'd rather like everyone just be able to hear it all because eventually I want you know the conversations I'm having to be useful to people. <laughs> so I would like to give that utility to the world for free. So like, I'm totally on board with the whole um, information should be free thing. Yeah. Yeah. But so can I, can I, can I like, right. Sorry, but I want to, I want to lay out like my conflict here and then we can, we can talk about, uh, you can sort of, yeah. So then at the same time, right. I'm, I'm an author and uh, I wrote one book. I've written a second book um that's almost finished at the minute it's about the the GameStop saga and like that that they, they've both taken about a year of my life almost um to put together and whilst they haven't become the first one or the second one yet <laughs> wildly successful um i would like to think that i will be financially rewarded if i do a good job and that therefore I'll be able to take the time to do the next thing. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to like how in this 
space do you envision that people, artists, creatives of any form survive, musicians, writers, podcasters, anything? Because like, if you're saying that everything has to be free, which I love on one hand, right? How can we make sure that there are people creating and not starving? <laughs> exactly. That's the crux of the issue. And I think it's, it's so conceptually difficult because as I said earlier, right, even though we can, in theory, differentiate between scarce and non-scarce goods, in perceived reality, it's very closely intermingled, right? So sure, information is free, but it takes a long bloody time to write the book, right? And your time is scarce, your attention, you can only apply it to one thing at a time. And so if you write a book, you cannot build a house because you are sitting you know, on the keyboard writing uh, and you can't be cutting wood and stuff. Um, so there is a sacrifice in writing the book, absolutely, right? Uh, and there is a conflict of where you should spend your time, writing the book or going to cut the house, right? Um, and uh, yes, uh, a financial reward can be a very useful um, tool to, uh, to help you deciding which of these tasks is more valuable. You know, if, if you build a house and someone's going to pay you 100 Bitcoin for it, I mean, obviously, right, that's a good deal. But, but on the other hand, you know, if, if you try to, <laughs> exactly, if you, if you try to write a book and, and you sell it, right, then you get 10 Bitcoin out there, maybe, right? Well, which of those should you invest your time in, right? Um, I mean, fi financial reward is not everything, right? Maybe you really want to write that book and you're uh, not that good of a builder, maybe. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Or at least you don't enjoy it that much, right? There's a lot of other considerations, but now at least you have feedback from someone else. Someone else is going to pay you 10 times as much if, if you build him a house rather than write him a book, right? That's, th that's a nice way to, to help you choose the ends, and which is a very difficult problem. Um, but uh, so, and, and, and now an, another way to tackle this is what do you actually want to achieve, right? Um, and if what you want to achieve uh, is I want to, I have a message, I have a pattern, and I, I want to tell it to many other people and for them to actually listen and to pay attention so that they can use this pattern and improve their lives, be better humans and help me out in, in cool ways that I can't even expect yet. Right? Something like this is probably the, the, the end goal of, of many podcasters. Very admirable, right? How is, that's a psychological question, right? So let's, let's assume that is answered. Now the economic question. How do you go about doing that? Right? You have two different strategies. One is tell the pattern to anyone who wants to listen. Done, right? The other is tell the pattern only to the people who pay you uh, $50 over PayPal. You know? um, just, you know, how are you going to achieve your goal if you limit your, your means such drastically, right? Like you reduce the potential size of people that are going to listen drastically, right? Um, so it, is it, is, if your main goal is, I want to get a lot of money, um, I, I would argue that's not a good enough end goal. Ask yourself why four times, and then you might have something reasonable. Right? Um, if your goal is, I want to spread the message and, and convince people of, of what I preach, um, then, then do it for sure in the free way. But what I've experienced personally is that uh, once you give, you receive. Uh, and especially in the terms of non-scarce information, the, the more non-scarce information you put out there, the more you speak and um, the more you refine your speech, uh, the, the more 
like the exponentially more impactful is going to be the feedback that you get. It not, not just like mainly in refining the pattern and improving it, because guess what? Your pattern isn't beautiful. Uh, it sucks. And you can do it a lot better and a lot more elegant, but you can't do it alone. You will need a lot of fresh inputs from other people to refine whatever you are articulating in whatever you do, um, just because doing stuff right is really difficult uh, and doing it alone is exponentially more so. And so, um, the, and now the, the kind of, the interesting way is now how, how do we build a system where information is treasured and where it is free uh, and shared broadly, but still the, cre the creators, the people who actually manifest these new patterns, who curate them, who, who advance and refine them, how do we still reward them for their time? Um, and here, I think, the instead of trying to put the old physical property right concept into cyberspace, uh, we should just embrace what cyberspace is and realize that just because something is non-scarce does not mean that it's not a good. You know, there's an economic good and there's an economic bad, two different things, right? A good is something that's useful, a bad is something that's not useful, right? A good gets you towards your end goal, whereas a bad hinders you. And there's an economic difference in these two terms. But information is a non-scarce good. It's not a non-scarce bad. I mean, it can be, right? There can be bad information that actually hinders you. A, a lie, basically, is that. Whereas a, a non-scarce good is actually useful information, right? So, uh, and again, valuation is subjective in the individual. So the people who receive your pattern Right? They might gain a, a very in-depth understanding of whatever it is you want to convey. And that helps them in their everyday lives. Right? If you show someone how to fish, that's a very useful pattern to be able to repeat later. And they're going to be very thankful because what you provided to them, even though you didn't sacrifice the information, you still provided them a good. It was still useful for them. And they are still grateful for that and, and, and have respect for this. And I, I think what's just missing is to give people a nice opportunity to give back, right? We, we, we can give back with non-scarce goods, like I'm going to press the like button. That's, that's basically non-scarce, you know, it's just a click uh, and the number in the database. Uh, and sure, that's nice, gets you to cheat the algorithm and whatnot, but uh, that's, not really, that's not really it. I don't think that's good enough. Um, and like where, where Bitcoin comes into this picture is, is Bitcoin is a, a good that you can give back it's a scarce good, meaning you actually sacrifice something, right? but hey, that's good because if you really value something, then you should sacrifice something to attain it. That's going to make it actually more meaningful. Um, so with things like podcasting 2.0 and now having the ability to add your lightning node public key, basically your Bitcoin address into your RSS feed, uh, everyone who is listening to your free content that you just put on your server and let anyone download uh, through the RSS feed, right? Um, Anyone who wants to can push back some Satoshis as a, a token of gratitude, right? As a thank you. Um, but, but notice this is not a certain price set for the revelation of information. That's if this was valuable for you, give me back something valuable and maybe make it match, you know, somewhat adequate for, for the value that I gave you. Give me something, you know, maybe even more valuable back. Uh, that, that will be a fair exchange, right? Um, and here's, it's, it's basically a donation. Um, you know, for, for the effort done, um, I, I would think of it like this. But I think what was lacking is just a good money to do it within cyberspace. That's Bitcoin. Uh, and a nice user interface and just a culture around doing that. 
And I think we're working on that with Podcasting 2.0. Okay. I want to ask you about this Podcasting 2.0 in a second here. But I just want to like go over the last couple of things on this topic. So you're essentially saying that we should, in this idealistic world, at least anyway, um, or in theory, be giving up all our stuff on the internet for free and hoping that the people who benefit from it will, yeah, tip in kind, essentially, that, that they'll pay as they feel you've earned it. Um, as a as a giving back rather than a sort of prefaced give me this money for my information sort of thing do you think we can trust people's judgment of what is uh good and worth money like obviously because obviously that you know there's the the market will will figure out a certain amount of things but like the best journalists for example that i follow are not the ones with the most followers you know, the most, the, the best paid journalists in the world are the worst. Like really the best paid journalists in the world are the, are the worst, right? <laughs> and I mean, like a journalist, we'll put that in air quotes. <laughs> but like, like, do you trust people to, to, to sort of adequately reward the right, the right information and the right people? Um, I think only individuals actually know what's valuable for them and what's more, more valuable than something else, right? That's a subjective marginal value judgment. Um, I, I think they're only the individual knows. Like, I don't know if you prefer steak to bananas. Uh, no clue, but you do. Right? Um, and, and of course, that's just a simple example. In, in actual reality, it's, it's infinitely more complex. Um, but, uh, and to the point of, is it, is this the only way to do it? Um, no, right? This is about pr privacy. This is about how do you reveal yourself to the world? Right? And this is a strategy question. Right? So that's why I, I set the premise at first. If your goal is to reach many people, then obviously giving the information to whoever wants it is better than restricting it to many people. Right? But maybe that's not your goal. And, and that's all right, right? I'm not making a value judgment whether that goal is good or not. That's a psychological question, right? If your goal is to um, to to uh, like share a certain pattern only with a very small, dedicated group of people so that you get a high level of feedback and a very dense feedback um, without putting too much of your public reputation on the line, right? That's a good, that's an end goal, like sure. Um, and then the way that you reach that is by not telling this to everyone, but to only tell it to a couple people. Right? And, and how do you decide which people to tell it to? Well, maybe there are some personal reasons, like it's your friend or some business reason, like it's your, your colleague, but uh, maybe it's, it's financial reasons, right? You only um, reveal that information to people who pay you. That's a great curation mechanism, right? And um, it, it works, of course, especially great when it comes about your time, right? So as soon as you have a live conversation like like this one, right? I, right now I'm talking to you. I can't do something else, right? So for for this, absolutely, you're like I'm selling my time, right? Uh, but if it's a recording, you know, um, and it's in cyberspace, that's that's something different. And here here's kind of where where it it turns into a cost benefit analysis, right? If it costs you a lot uh, to kind of replicate the information. Eh? Um, then, then yes, you're going to have higher barriers to entry with whom you share it, uh, because uh, every sharing costs you. Uh, and that was the case with, you know, hand-scribed books. Like it takes you a year to write a beautiful book. You know, I mean, what like that's 
that's expensive. Um, printing press made it easier and, and now cyberspace made it trivial. Um, so we've continuously reduced the cost of copying information. Right? And that's great. That's awesome. Right? We have much more abundance. Uh, uh, we have much more accessible information, much more refined techniques. It's incredible, you know, just that aspect of, of reducing the cost to copy. Um, and I just think we should double down on it for, for many things, not for everything, obviously. Right? And, and that's where encryption comes in. Like, you know, you talking to your spouse, maybe you don't want to share that to the entire world. Right? So encrypt it to your spouse's private key. Right? Uh, and voila, only she can read it. Um, and uh, that's kind of how the, cy the cypherpunks go about this. Right? Now that the cost is so cheap and everyone can just copy everything, and keep it and remember it and search it and index it and curate it, right? Um, what do we do with the stuff that we don't want to share? You know, because we, we don't want to share everything. Like that's that's the point. If if the strategy would be everything must be released free and open source for everyone, right? There's no longer choice involved. That just makes you a slave of some weird free software <laughs> king. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so yes, it's definitely about strategy and there are numerous ways to go about it. Um, but I'm just continuously surprised how good the strategy is that is coherent to this principle of non-scarcity. Like if, if you just put your information out there and you ask people, hey, give give back how much you how much you think is this is meaningful, like you get back a decent amount. I mean, I'm talking to you from a microphone that I fundraised with some Bitcoin QR codes and YouTube videos, you know? And no way, like that's it, cool as fuck, it, man. Yeah, and like you, especially now with this podcasting 2.0, you know, I, I did old school actually showing QR codes in the videos, it's super cumbersome, but still some people did it. But now there are just apps where you just say, okay, 100 Satoshis every minute uh, to, to the podcast creator. And it gets automatically split up, you know, 80% to the creator, 10% to the editor, 5% to a nonprofit foundation, and 5% to the app who develops it, you know? Um, and just whenever you press play, there's there's a payment. And I, I look on my side of the wallet and I, I just see exactly when, you know, people are listening right now. And they like it so much that they give me the most magical, precious cyberspace money that we've ever come up with in Bitcoin. Right? It's, it's like that's such a massive token of respect and gratitude uh, that people give me. And, and, you know, often it's substantial amounts, um, uh, you know, especially if your podcast is, is up and running. Uh, of course, you know, just it's a numbers game. Um, but the cool thing is you don't need to be big, right? Sure, the big guys will get hundreds of donations every month. But if you're small and you have like 100 listeners, but 10 of them really like it and 10 of them make a decent but small amount, you know, that sums up. And, and you can get it without having an advertisement deal, without being the biggest guy who jumped on top of the algorithm, right? Like as long as there's a couple people out there enjoying your content, they can send money and it goes to you and only to you. You know, uh, and you choose how to split it up among other people. Mm, okay, I'm gonna have to look more into this. I'm definitely gonna check this out. Um, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Value4value.io. Oh, value the, number four. Value.io. Value for value. Yes, and I'll stick that in the, the description below for people as well. And the podcasting 2.0 podcast. Uh, by Adam Curry and Dave Jones uh, is, is two of the guys who were quite influential in building podcasts as, per se. And then they were like, hey, look at this weird Bitcoin thing. How about we put the two things together and let them kiss? Uh, <laughs> and, and that's podcasting 2.0. And it's like, you know, it, it's something. Like it, it really feels magical 
to mm. to pay like you know I, I used to like I spent way more bitcoins now than I used to just because of that one one use case because like mm. I'm listening to a podcast that I know like it's a niche friend of mine you know at most 500 listeners but I sent him 10,000 sats why not you know and and I know it just gets there and uh, it doesn't matter how high he ranks up in in the algorithm you know uh, I if I like it I I pay it yeah yeah, we're in a brave new world of of yeah, finance. I guess that's why they're trying to shut it down. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, fucking Hillary Clinton up talking about like I I I I I have not stopped laughing at this this video that was her talking about how crypto needed to be regulated, and someone just commented like, "So you don't understand emails, but crypto is fine." Like you get that. And I, yeah, I cracked up laughing for about 10 minutes and I still do every time I think about it. It's like, these people are just a joke. Like they just think they can stand there and say things and we'll just be like, oh yes, they must know what they're talking about. But, <laughs> uh, which brings us nicely actually to one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about uh, with you was, do we need government for progress? Because, yeah, yeah just, just, do, 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 is government necessary for human progress? individuals are for sure individuals are the cornerstone that like the the, the nucleus of, of where progress comes from right you you have a problem you you geniusly come up with multiple solutions you pick the best one and then you use whatever is available to you to solve it that is progress that is human action uh, and th- th- like this is where 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 we improve our situations where 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 we can aim for higher goals um and I I, th- I think uh, that uh, if we um, so there are infinitely many ways of how we could act together and, and how we could collaborate together um, and the question is can, can we find out some things that we should not do right w- what are some of the actions that are just not okay um, and, uh, and I think a good way to go about this is, is is with reason actually we start with human action we, we play out the consequences um, and, and that's praxeology. And I think we can apply that to the ethical realm too. I'm, I'm a Rothbardian in that regard. Um, and I, I think that the gist of it is that just don't steal, you know, don't violate the property of a, a the, in a scarce resource uh, of a peaceful individual. Right. So if you didn't create, if you didn't homestead the, the resource out of natural abundance, uh, or if you did not buy it, and then it's not yours and you don't get to make a decision of how to allocate those scarce resources. Right? Again, tightly limited to scarce resources with the same reasoning. You don't own non-scarce resources. That's an, a stupid claim. Uh, it's, it's not how things are. Um, uh, like the words are not correct. <laughs> like actually, uh, you, you know something, but you don't have exclusive ownership over it. Right? Um, and um, and so where does and that is why I I, I love the, the free market basically that is what the free market is for me and it's it's where every individual gets for himself uh, to decide what is his highest goal what, what do you want to achieve what do, what do you want to strive on and that once something once the goal is is laid out right um, then you then or and the goal does not um, violate the goal of someone else right so if if getting to that goal requires the, the violation of property rights in 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 someone else then that's not a good goal like you're 
your priorities of allocating your or, or, or your priorities of ends are wrong. And uh, your end is not important than the, the end of the guy who actually owns it. Um, and uh, that in and of itself, I think, leads to the uh, a maximum amount of progress because it is it, it is a small restriction in what not to do, don't steal, um, that that sets boundaries, uh, that does limit our our options, but that that if adhered to, um, leads to always the the best outcome that there could be. Because whenever an action is voluntary, both parties think that they will be better uh, after the action than they were before. Right. So you're hungry, right, and I'm thirsty. I have a steak, you have water, you know, I don't want to eat, I want to drink. You don't want to drink, you want to eat. Right? Now we trade, we, we swap these things around. Now I got the thing that I want and you got the thing that you want. Right? We're both better off. That's mutually beneficial exchange. Uh, and th that has to be voluntary. And, and then the question is of, of what is uh, a government or, or what is a state? Um, and uh, I, I think like in this mindset, a very clear distinction uh, is that a state is uh, like institutionalized theft, right? It, it is taking the property in scarce resources of individuals uh, who, uh, uh, who, who are innocent, who are, who are vi uh, victims, uh, and some some other person or entity takes these resources and decides how to allocate them, right? So that is, of course, bodily slavery, um, uh, of uh, as as well as like full full term slavery, as as well as things like income tax or. Um, uh, property taxes or uh, inheritance taxes or all these things are just someone else is taking money from you without you actually wanting it. Uh, and you can't say no. Um, and that, or because you cannot say no, it is a proof that this isn't the best scenario for you, right? Because uh, if like, if it isn't, you would say no, uh, but you can't. Uh, and that inherent problem is, is I think just very deep in, in today's uh, state apparatus. Um, yeah. I guess my confusion comes here when it's just like, okay, my, my, my theory is that humans can collaborate without a rule structure up to about a group of 100 people, and then you need a system or people will either abuse the... I don't know, the hierarchy that exists, if one exists at all, they will um, bend the rules, they will lie, cheat, steal to get themselves ahead. And therefore, we have decided through human history, well, many places decide at least anyway, that like there has to be some form of state, some sort of bureaucracy and vague, loose collection of laws and rules to you know, be like, right, here's what's fine. Here's what's not. Give us some money. We'll sort it out. Because <laughs> that's basically what government is, right? Um, I, yes, but there's, I think, a difference between uh, the rules and the rulers. And and I'm an anarchist in the sense of uh, the the actual epistemology of, of the Greek word uh, anarchon. Right. So an is a prefix in Greek meaning without, and archon means rulers. Right. Not it does not mean without rules. It means without rulers, there is a rule, do not steal. That is the only rule. And it's a hard rule that when you cross it, you're always in immoral and bad behavior. Um, but uh, Okay, um, so what would be the consequences then? Um, well, the consequences that whom, uh, whomever's property you violated, like I go and, and rip off your shirt, 
Now you have the inherent right to take off the shirt, uh, to take the shirt back, right? Uh, it, um, like the, the, the there's okay, two sorry. concepts here. There is yeah. there's non-aggression and there's self-defense, and they, they go hand in hand. Non-aggression means don't steal, hmm. and self-defense means if you're stolen from, take back your property. It is yours, and is your it is your right to take it back. Um, it's not your obligation to take it back. You can let the thief run, right? But uh, if you want to stop him, you can. Right? Um, and that's that's the gist here. Those are the two principles that just, I think, need to be consistently applied. Okay. So who, sorry, so say one guy like comes along, steals the shirt. The other guy goes, hey, give it back and goes like trying to go, to, tries to go after him. And then the other guy sort of like snaps his fingers and 16 guys appear from behind trash cans and trees and everything with like fucking AKs pointed at them and go, you still want your shirt back? It's like okay, so who, what, where, like, is because I'm not saying that that isn't like that that we couldn't have a world like that where there was like the vaguely accepted moral code, but then it was upon everyone to enforce it themselves, essentially. But I'm skeptical that that works, essentially, because <laughs> I think people are awful. <laughs> Like people are brilliant, but they're fucking awful. <laughs> That's it's it's true to a large extent. We can be quite monsters, um, and the but the thing is, like, um, it, it's it's not will we live in a world without theft? Um, that's not a reasonable goal or, or, or level of analysis, right? Um, we live in a in scarce resources. That's that's what we assume with human action. That's our starting point, right? So there will always be conflict, always, right? That that's what we try to solve. Right? We live in a world with thieves. Now, what do we do about it? And I think the best way to do it is just to call a thief a thief. Like, if you steal, that's not good, period. Regardless if you're an individual, uh, regardless if you have a group of 16 guys with guns behind you, now it's not just you stealing, it's the 16 other guys stealing too, right? and, and supporting you in an unjust claim. And uh, I would argue that the victim has every right uh, to, to now initiate uh, or or, or answer with uh, defensive force uh, and and violence, so to say. It's not aggression, it's defensive. Um, and, and that is all right, and that is good. And other people can come to the support of the victim, uh, or, or more accurately, the victim, uh, only the victim has the right uh, to self-defense, but the victim can choose to abdicate this right to someone else. It is an inalienable right. You can give it away. Right? So if, if you're old and you have broken legs and you don't want to be the one going to slap the guys uh, as punishment, well, then get your sons and your friends and you can tell them, please uh, go out there and retribute and take, take back my shirt because that guy stole it from me. Uh, and now, assuming that you are actually the victim and you have your rights actually violated, then yes, you can extend your right to self-defense to other people. Right? And that can be your friends and family. Uh, and that can be specialists like police forces, basically, uh, you know, private protection agencies, so to say. But here the critical part is every single individual is responsible for his own actions. Right? So, so what would happen if, if I tell my kids, hey, that guy st stole my shirt right? and I give you OK to go and, and take it back. But I'm, I'm just bullshitting here. And actually, that's your shirt. And now I sent my kids to to steal it from you. And they actually beat you up and, and took the shirt. Right. Now, they thought they were defending, right? but they are actually aggressing. And who is responsible for the aggression? They are. 
right? Not even me giving the order, so to say. Like they are more morally culpable because they actually beat you up and took your shirt, right? So just I'm just following orders is no excuse here. You are always responsible for your actions. That is a, a natural law of cause and effect. Uh, and you can't get away uh, from it. If you run off the cliff, gravity is going to catch you. Right? Hmm. And in, in the same sense here, right? If, if you steal from others, even though you think that you're doing the defensive action there, when in reality, that is not the case. And there is a objective moral here. Do you steal or do you not steal? That is a yes or a no question. Whenever the answer to the, que the question of do you steal is yes, then it is a bad act. Whenever you say, no, I'm not stealing, I only use what is mine and what others have voluntarily given me, then the answer is, you're good. D do as you wish. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not, it's not so much a world without theft and without crime that I'm hoping for. It's like I, I my, at least, perhaps poorly thought out, but my ideal would be a world where there are consequences for those kinds of things. And I guess that's where the difference is because like, it's like right now, right now there's, there's, um, or last year or well, not even last year, this year. And the, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, there was a woman who was assaulted by, um, a police officer and killed her name was Sarah Everard in the UK. And, um, in the wake of that, I saw a lot of people on Twitter, like outraged about yeah, a police officer killing a young woman. It's like, yeah, fucked up situation. But then they were like, we need to end all violence towards women and girls. And I was like, what do you mean? And like, what? Like, it's illegal. Like, it's, <laughs> like, like what else do you want? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just, uh, so then like who... Who becomes the arbiter of justice? Is it like community, the society that 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 decides like punishments or or you know because like say say someone is going around and they keep setting like people's cars on fire right and they come back and then whatever you know someone like beats them up as the the you know they've their self defense or aggression or you know retribution or whatever but he just keeps going around burning people's cars and they keep going to him and they keep breaking this, you know, they keep like beating him up or burning his stuff. And he's just like, well, I just like things on fire. And he just keeps going around setting stuff on fire. Like who, who steps in here? Like, does someone have to like, I don't know, does someone have to take it upon themselves to just like chain him up or like, cause, cause that seems like a pretty barbaric way to deal with it. Even if he is setting people's stuff on fire. I know this is a weird hypothetical I've invented, but <laughs> Oh, no, but it's very spot on. And I think it's important to discuss these edge cases and then to analyze how do different systems solve these edge cases. And, and, and one challenge, we don't even have to get into it now, but how does the current government solve it? And the current infrastructure, and I would argue it's quite horrible, uh, but how would we solve it in, in a free system without theft, right? Uh, without um, legalized theft, so to say, right? We just apply the, the, the theory of theft to everyone, and right? there's no exclusion for government agents when they steal. It's, it's not okay, even if you call yourself a government or the official police force, if you kill an innocent woman, like in this example, you're a murderer, done, uh, and, and you deserve punishment, uh, and I hope you get it, right? Um, but the... Um, so uh, there's two different, there's also two different things here, right? Um, th that are difficult. Uh, how do we find out who did the right and who did the wrong? 
Um, so that's kind of the, 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 the jury process, right? The, the judgment process. And then what do we do once we find out, right? Uh, and, and how do we go about uh, getting the victim his retribution, right? Getting him his stuff back, basically. Um, th these are two different things, and they are very difficult. And when, whenever they, there are difficult situations where one person might not be the best equipped to, to solve this problem, right? You might not know exactly what happened there, right? And you might not know exactly if which of the guys did the right or did the wrong, right? Um, so what you can do is you can hire a specialist, as with everything, right? If you're too lazy to bake a bread, you go to a bakery and you buy one, right? You hire a specialist to focus on what he is marginally better at so that you can focus on what you are marginally better at. Um, so that basically just means it's a free system of courts, right? You can go to anyone and say, hey, please give me a, a judgment of whom do you think did the right and the wrong, right? On, on any question and without any license or whatnot, anyone can answer the question. I think that guy did wrong, right? And that's a judgment. Um, and uh, like, so you you can build this in a very like long-term reputable trust relationship where you have a company or, or a law firm or just your personal repu rep representation where you build up that the confidence that you often make the right call. Like in the question of who is right, who is wrong, you're usually on the right side. You're not going to be perfect right? and, and you don't have to be, but usually you're, you're, you're quite good. Um, and that is why people will, will hire you and trust your judgment, right? Because again, if, if then the next step is the police force, right? The enforcement of the actual thing, like, again, you can abdicate that right and give it to someone else. Uh, and that can be a specialist. You can hire a, a SEAL team, you know, with tanks and helicopters, um, or just a private, like small term, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, detective mm -hmm. basically, uh, again, the degree, the degree of how much do you want? Uh, of whatever, right? Security, uh, um, uh, judgment, and such is uh, is again very individual. So here you um, and now you you hire a uh, an enforcement firm basically uh, to go take back your property. Well, if this is a, a again can be your friends or whatever, but these these people are responsible for their actions. So if they just trust you blindly, it's like yeah, okay, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get that shirt back, and it turns out it, it wasn't stolen, right? then these guys are actually the thieves and are responsible for their theft right? uh, and have to pay uh, damages to the actual victim. Mm -hmm. right? um, so therefore... Okay, so right there, right, hang on, hold, hold that thought right there. So who enforces that? Because to me, it sounds like you're, you're advocating for like a whole bunch of sort of free market, private like courts. The, it's like the right? question of who will bake the bread. But... Uh, whoever you know like whoever wants to and whoever does a good job i will work with you if, if anyone produces a shitty bread i'm not gonna buy it you know if it's all burned and stuff i'm i, I just don't work with you right uh, and it's same it is with with judicial services like if if i hire you and you make an obviously bad judgment you know like i have proof of everything of how the guy robbed me and you're like no no he didn't you wanted to give it to him you know it's like no, I didn't. Like, and I will tell other people. And it's like, hey, this guy makes stupid judgments. Uh, I wouldn't hire him. You know, that's basically a boycott, which is absolutely uh, voluntary. Can be done. I don't need to work with you. Right? But then, why wouldn't why wouldn't everyone just go to like a say say I set up my like judgments inc. Right, I sit there with a desk and I go, I will write mm -hmm. a judgment for whatever you want. Be like one hundred bitcoins. I will say what yeah. I will make yeah, whatever exactly. judgment you is, want. You know. 
surely then people will just keep going to like the people that give them the judgments they want rather than the just sure but then if you use a wrong judgment and you act out an aggressive act right based with the justification of that judgment then you are the aggressor and that victim can take another court system to sue you Um, so, so just because someone told you, hey, go out and kill that guy, doesn't mean that you actually have the right to go kill that guy. Like, throw on your reason. Think a bit. Uh, like, if, <laughs> if that guy is a murderer, sure, kill him. But if not, then don't. And if you start chill- shooting people who are innocent, you are the murderer and people will come after you. Mm. Okay. What? then I, we're, we're, we've talked a lot about this. I think we've missed half the things I wanted to talk about, but we're, we're doing fine. Um, the uh, So like, then what do you see as being the limit of this ideal? Like I, 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 I feel like, okay. So I've, I've, um, I've long been like quite a big, big fan of the state having, power that it can you know i think the state can do good basically and i think the invention of the nation state was a vague or good or like just this idea that there's like a certain area governed by specific people laws whatever like this is your area this is our thing there's where the border is this is where our laws apply that kind of thing right um i'm very skeptical as well the last 18 months has made me like hyper skeptical of 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 um of government power um so i'm far more wary of that than i used to be but still seems to me like the nation state is a good thing right because i don't think you would have had the monstrous wealth and prosperity that we have now in the developed world were it not for things like the nation state basically i'm uh, so I'm not so sure about this one. Okay. We look back in the 20th century, you know, we, we, we have Bismarck, who the kind of the father of, of the modern nation state. And, and that kicks off, you know, the First World War, the Second World War, massive hyperinflations, the Cold War, uh, all the wars in the Middle East. I mean, the 20th century was a bloody century, like to, to a horrific, absolutely horrific degree. And who did most of that violence? It was government agents who had the, the legal legitimation to that theft and to that violence and to this aggression, right? According to the laws of Nazi Germany, Hitler did nothing wrong, right? He had all the legal jurisdiction to do just that. Uh, it, it, he made the justification that his violence, that his aggression uh, is is okay. And in my provoked of view, it's not. No violence, uh, sorry, no aggression is okay. No theft is okay. Violence can be used in defense. Force can be used defensively. Yes, we have to differentiate that very carefully. Um, but I, I just don't like to give anyone the permission to steal. Because, mm. mm. yeah, well, okay, I'll take what you mean about, uh, there, about them changing the laws to make it legal. Um, but the 20th century, as, as fucking god-awfully bloody and violent as it was, was also arguably the century in which we made the most progress as a as a species just in that like towards universal rights universal suffrage like we lifted almost the entire world out of poverty um that you know so i still i still think that the nation state is is kind of the thing that allowed people to build structures systems societies and hierarchies big enough 
to create all of those things. Like obviously what, what, what it means is like we've seen the both horrendous sides of it. Like we've seen the destructive, awful, violent power of what those systems can do, but we've also seen like the good and I guess I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe this like idealistic reliance on like a, a like a list of principles and morals by which all the nations of the world should govern themselves is a little bit too idealistic or like I don't know top down for it to actually work. But yeah, maybe that's what I'm clinging to. <laughs> um, no, I I, I, see, I see your point, and obviously there has been changes and and capital accumulation uh, and great innovations. Like I you know, I love cyberspace, and that's basically a pure 20th century uh, innovation, uh, uh, especially in the later half, right? So that's definitely like, there are points here, but as Friedrich Bastiat would say, the seen and the unseen. Sure, if you go around throwing stones into windows, like, yeah, the like the window manufacturer is going to be happy because he, he's got a <laughs> bunch of work, right? That's great. We're all so rich. Uh, well, well, yeah, but, but the guy who got his window broken, he had to, to spend money to get it repaired. And he couldn't spend it on something else, like feeding his children or, or whatever. And then, um, so yes, we've made a lot of advancement. That's the scene. But what is the unseen? You know, what are all the opportunity costs of uh, of the things that the government stole money and reallocated it? Mm. Where could we have spent that money if it were on voluntary interaction? Right. And, and, and again, here this is a this is a truth. Voluntary interaction is a positive sum game both parties are better off. Whereas involuntary transactions like theft are zero-sum games. One person wins, the thief, and one person loses, the victim. Right? So, so that is an inherent universal truth that is always there. So whenever we have an involuntary government action, like sure, we like the thief is rich, great, and, and you can do something with that capital. Yes, you have capital now. But what would the other guy have done if he hadn't had a gun to his face? Mm. Right? Um, and it's, it's not just the seen and the unseen, it's also the unrealized. You know, what about all these creative geniuses uh, that because they were restricted and stolen from on, on a colossal scale to, to some extent, um, they just could not manifest their genius to solve complex problems because they were starving. You know, like we have very difficult things to achieve uh, and, and we need hyper-specialized um, society to do that. Uh, like we can't all survive on our own when we were all looting from each other. Like we have to collaborate. The only way to collaborate is to be peaceful and to not steal. And, and but if we would do that, everyone has his kind of lower need satisfied, so to say, uh, and nobody's coming after you with a chainsaw. You know, that's that's nice. Then you can think about difficult problems. Mm. And so, what about all these people that starved in the gulags and all the creative geniuses that we have eliminated mm. there? Like that is the unrealized. Yeah. And, and all of these things together, like for me, it seems it seems obvious, like the toll is 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 clearly that the government is destructive on every level to an to an unimaginable extent. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you're making too much sense there. <laughs> That's the sad thing about reason, right? It's like, I don't like it, <laughs> but it seems correct. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, so many questions i get but the um yeah the last thing one thing i want to note there actually about what you said about the seen and the unseen that you just reminds me of um this great stat and i was uh i came across it in um nicholas shackson's book the finance curse and he he basically points out that um 
a lot of the conventional wisdom is that the financial industry is really good for the British economy. Do you know what I mean? Pum, you know, it's the world leader and, you know, gives us loads of money and stuff. But it, yeah, he cited some estimations that it had cost the British economy $4.3 trillion in lost growth, um, which is just staggering. That's like four times our GDP. Um which is baffling. So the seen and the unseen is all like, you know, we can, we can see all of the massive skyscrapers and the bankers, you know, getting paid hundreds of thousands and millions of pounds. But the damage you don't see is the, all the businesses they have destroyed um, due to financialization. So exactly. Yeah. And, and, and as you bring up skyscrapers, there's a really cool book uh, by David Klein um, uh, called the skyscraper curse. Um, and he, it's 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 both a praxeological uh, uh, economics book as well as a history book. So he looks throughout the history and sees when were the tallest building, the record-breaking buildings, when were they constructed? I think all the way back to like the 1700s. Right? Um, and he he overlaid that with the Austrian business cycle theory of of when were the boom and busts. Right? Uh, and how was the money printing during this period? Uh, that's the cause of the boom and bust cycle. Uh, and there was a very strong correlation that whenever a new record-breaking skyscraper foundation is started, you know, the first cornerstone, uh, in that year, the economy collapses. Um, and it's an extremely strong correlation that does hold. And there's a very interesting logical explanation for this. Uh, and that is basically uh, the Cantillon effect and the Austrian business cycle. So um, the question is, what happens when we increase the money supply, right? when we print additional money, basically, as we as we do today, quite drastically, right? uh, what happens then? Uh, so let's say as in the last two years, you know, um, 60 percent of uh, the, the US dollar base increased by 60 percent. And so so all of a sudden um, your percentage allocation of the money supply has shrunk. Right? if you have 10 out of 100 monetary units, you got 10 percent. If you increase the money supply to 10 out of 160, and all of a sudden you have less percent, obviously. So that is the, the initial obvious cost. Like you're, uh, if you increase the money supply, you literally take purchasing power and monetary capital from the people who hold the money to the people who receive the newly created money first. Mm. Right? But then what happens next, right? The people who got their money printed, and now they have more purchasing power, but only reason why you have purchasing power is when you purchase something. And so you go out and, uh, and the one who got the newly printed money first, and now you buy yourself a Lamborghini. Right? And now the demand for Lamborghinis went up. Right? Uh, and the Lamborghini entrepreneur might think, oh, oh cool, like there's, there's demand, like people actually want to have more Lamborghinis. Right? So let's not just sell this one, let's start building more Lamborghinis. Right? Um, and the the like in without the money printing, right? You can only buy yourself that Lamborghini if you actually sacrifice and if you save your capital, right? If, if you actually for many, many years, you know, put something in your piggy bank until you have however much is needed for the Lambo, right? And then you buy it and then demand goes up. And then people realize, hey, someone sacrificed a whole bunch to get that Lambo. So probably in the future, there will be more people like that. So let's build more, right? So that's that's the incentive to go into deeper production stages, right? To in, into a more complex roundabout economy. Um, but the problem is that this was not a, a savings increase in demand, right? Someone just clicked the button and got a couple trillion dollars and is now buying himself a Lambo. Like there was no sacrifice there. He just stole it from people, 
like literally, you know? So, um, and the problem is, uh, or not the problem, but that's quick sidestep. There's a, one of the assumptions of every early uh, in our logical chain is, is marginal diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And it's very closely tied to subjective value theory. Basically means the more you have of something, the less valuable is every single one of these goods, right? So assume you're starving uh, and there is a beautiful piece of steak there. Like you, you really like that steak because it saves you from dying, right? Um, after eating one, okay, you're, you're probably like you're no longer starving, but you're still a bit hungry. So there's a second one. Sure, you eat it because at least you're no longer hungry then, right? Not just not starving, but not hungry. And then the, the you know, the third one, okay, you know, uh, you can probably still eat it, get rationed up for the next day, right? But uh, like, it's not that important anymore. The fourth one, just leave me, you know, I, I'm full. I don't want, right? So every additional stake is worth less and less and less. Um, and the same goes kind of uh, or like flipped around. If you have a whole bunch of money, or sorry, if you have very little money, what do you do with it? Right? You you either uh, you invest it in a consumption or production good that you really 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 need, right? Because like you're starving and you're going to buy your first steak, right? So that's the most important thing that you do is when you have very little money. And now what happens if you get marginally more money? You know, hundred extra bucks. What do you do? Well, now you buy some clothes, right? Instead of buying food, mm. right? That's the, the a less valuable thing, right? Um, and that continues and continues and continues, right? So if people have more money, they will invest it in marginally worse products and services uh, and production stages. Mm. And that includes services that take a longer time, right? What's better to get your Lambo today or to get it in a year? Well, obviously getting it today is better, right? So if you have money, you buy to first the Lambo today and second the Lambo in a year, you know, with, with the money that's left over. Mm. Um, so... Uh, that means that the, the more we shift capital to a few people who then have a whole bunch of money that they did not sacrifice anything for, that they literally stole, the, the more they will invest in marginally worse and marginally longer, more roundabout production stages. And, and that's then where the, the shocker comes in, right? That's the boom period. Um, like everyone's buying Lambos all of a sudden. Like, that's awesome. You know, that's great. Right? Um, and, and everyone's rich, everyone's happy, stock prices go up, housing market goes up, you know, great. Uh, until you realize, oh, wait, like we just started production of 100 Lambos, but there's only enough iron to finish one Lambo. Shit, I, I thought people were saving their money and not consuming the iron and other stuff, right, to actually save your capital. I thought there was enough iron around to actually build it. That's what the price has indicated to me. Right? But turns out, no. There's only enough for like 5% of what we actually want to build, right? But we already started, you know, we already have the tires and the windshields. And now we have these very specific pieces of capital. And and what do we do with them? Like, we just burn them? Like, we can't, you know, reverse engineer matter. You know, time flows in one direction. We just have opportunity cost, right? We build up very deep, long production stages, thinking that we have the resources to finish it because we thought that the demand was from savings, But the demand was from stolen theft and money printing, meaning that was just a bunch of rich people investing in useless stuff. And we've overconsumed. We've eaten all our resources today or or yesterday already, thinking that we were super rich and that number go up and everyone gets a Lambo. So we were all consuming like crazy. We further depleted our capital stock. And at the same time, we thought that we're going to be even richer in the future. So we prolong our production stages further decrease our actual available generic capital 
and put it into specific things, right? Iron ore into iron nougats into a block of uh, um, like a motor block, you know, like all these transformations we've done, we cannot undo them. And now we're left with no steel and no lambos. Right? And that's the bust. That's when you realize we've eaten too much, right? And we've we've wasted all our like resources on stuff that we can't even finish now. Um, and so to bring this back to your earlier point, a long circle, but I'm getting there. <laughs> um, it, like, sure, the 20th century seems great. Like, we had a bloody party. Like, it, awesome, you know? A massive growth on so many levels. But have we actually, like, created new capital? Or have we just consumed capital that we think we, we can just, in the future, we're going to be, we're still going to be rich and we will have enough, you know? Um, and, and I think that we lived in uh, enormous exuberance because of a global money printing scheme um, that incentivized uh, entrepreneurs worldwide uh, to consume or to, to invest longer and consumers to consume more. And I think we're, we're starting to realize that actually we're not that rich that we thought. And actually there is no more food left. Uh, and I, th I think that is a problem. And I think we're starting to see it more and more. Yeah. I mean, this is interestingly, that is the point that Greg Foss made to me. He's a former trader, um, who a former risk and debt trader, basically he retired and, uh, then yeah, he's a Bitcoin maxi now, basically. So he was, he was basically making the exact same point, um, that yeah, the global, he, he basically said the global, the global fiat money, uh, system is a Ponzi scheme. And the word is basically like, stop screwing over my kids, people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. You know, yeah, there's this common Keynesian saying of, um, oh, national debt is just money yeah. that we owe to ourselves. And I hate that statement so much. I fundament I, I could not more fundamentally disagree <laughs> with so few words. It's incredible. Like, first, who is we? Right? The collective does not act. Humans, individuals act. Right? So it, it, it's, it's not that we as a collective just move money from left pocket to right pocket. No, the politician takes money from me, right? So, uh, and in the future context, right, it's not like in the future are going to be different people than now, right? So if we go into depth with the people from the future, it's not we owe it to ourselves. It's I owe it to my children, right? Uh, again, individuals act. That's our unit of analysis. That's the fundamental starting point. Um, and, and then the other thing is like, we owe it to ourselves. Well, but, but when, you know, it, 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 the t temporal aspect is there, right? So, and, and it shows you the, the I think, the, the root fundamental flaw of Keynesianism and modern macroeconomics are these two things. They assume that collectives act and they assume that time does not exist. And if you have these two assumptions, everything makes sense. Everything that is in the fiat world happening makes sense. If if only collectives exist and there's no time, print as much money as you want. Obviously, obviously, right? That's that's the logical conclusion if you start out your model and your analysis from those starting points. I just vehemently disagree that these are the correct starting points, right? And, and if you agree that the individual exists and time exists, right? Then I would argue that the only, the, the absolutely only logical conclusion from the starting point is a radical free market anarchist society where theft is always uh, being held responsible for. Well, that has given me a lot to think about. 
And also on your on your note about Lamborghinis, um, I would like to use this very roundabout way to plug my book, which has just gone into production <laughs> uh, to the moon, the GameStop saga. Um, and hopefully all the people on Reddit is a question often asked by the community. It's like, when are we all going to get rich and buy Lamborghinis? Um, <laughs> so yeah, everyone, um, I just started production on the book. So I'm halfway, halfway to my crowdfunding total, um, which just paid the publishers. And uh, yeah, so people check it out if you haven't already. But yeah, Max, um, aside from that, yeah, I I, I am excited for people great. to read it. Like to so excited. Mainly because there's, I'm not censoring the use of my language at all. Like, uh, there's, I'm swearing. There's horrendous, awful things being written in there, and um, it's Great. a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, uh, Max, I really want to thank thank you for your time. This was like a fascinating conversation. Um, and yeah, uh, do you want to do you want to point people towards your, yourself and some of your work and things to to check out from from you? Yeah, uh, uh, my personal website is towardsliberty.com uh, and towardsliberty.com slash pop or slash praxeology of privacy uh, is, is the crowdfunding for, for the book yet to be written. Um, I, um, I've talked about this on so many platforms, uh, so many different outlets, and I just want to bring it into a coherent and, and rigorous format, uh, a long form that really goes through all the cases, you know, so... It's kind of daunting work, uh, um, but I I really love the the Austrian mindset and I love the cypherpunk strategy. It's just so genius and it is so true. It is a correct strategy. It is a it is a right strategy that does not steal, um, and and that's I, I think that just needs to be hunkered down. And that that level or that view that that lens is is just great to look at Bitcoin with. Um, it's super interesting. Uh, so that's. That's kind of where I'm, I'm linking two people. Like again, I, I have a bunch of stuff to do, uh, and I don't know if writing the book is the best use of my time. Uh, if you think that this information ought to be, uh, this pattern ought to be manifested on paper, <laughs> then then support me there. You know, if you do, great. Uh, if not, I will write the book probably yeah. later. I, I will still write it someone because it's so interesting. But priorities, right? Um, and then uh, uh, probably I would suggest a, a podcast series that I did with Robert Breedlove uh, on the What is Money podcast. Uh, I think that's like 20 or 25 hours um, uh, of, of multiple episodes and podcasts where we talk about uh, Murray Rothbard's book, The Ethics of Liberty, uh, which I, I draw a lot from. Like uh, there is no new knowledge under the sun. And mm. I didn't make up any of this. Right. I just discovered a very interesting pattern here. Um, and Rothbard laid out beautifully in, in his book there uh, how, how to use praxeological reasoning to to find out which ends are better to other ends, right? To make to make a, a value judgment on your ends more of a psychological question. He actually does that with reasoning and praxeology, which is a, a breathtaking like um, intellectual exercise. Um, and what else? Uh, yeah, no, uh, like hit me up. I'm happy for for conversations. Uh, Twitter at Hillebrand Max, uh, GitHub at Max Hillebrand. I think uh, you will figure it out. Uh, but Josh, thank you very much uh, for the for the invite. It was a pleasure chatting. Yeah, no uh, problem, man. I'm I'm looking forward to the book. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll be there sooner rather than later. <laughs> but yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.